Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, as always. And today I have a very good guest for you. It is Dr. Richard Schweder. He is a cultural anthropologist and the Harold H. Swift Distinguished Service Professor of Human Development at the University of Chicago in the US. He is the author of Thinking Through Cultures, Expeditions in Cultural Psychology, and Why Do Men Barbecue? Recipes for Cultural Psychology, and editor or co-editor of many books in the areas of cultural psychology, psychological anthropology, and comparative human development. Dr. Schweder has been the recipient of many awards, including a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship and the American Association for the Advancement of Science Social Psychological Prize for his essay, Does the Concept of the Person Vary Cross-Culturally? He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he has also served as president of the Society for Psychological Anthropology. So, Dr. Schweder, thank you a lot for coming on the show. It is really a pleasure to everyone. I'm delighted to be here. I look forward to our conversation. Okay, great. So, let's see. The first question I would like to ask you is, so in your work, you deal a lot with morality, but what is morality from, let's say, a scientific slash psychological slash anthropological perspective? Because as far as I understand it, and I've already had some conversations with psychologists and anthropologists and other people like that about this issue, and it seems that it is not really uh, the thing that people from from a philosophical perspective understand right so i guess i disagree with that right from the start i think that there is no way to avoid the philosophical question if you're going to do a descriptive study of something that is entitled to be called morality and in fact i think those who take that position generally have a particular philosophical stance which is metaphysical we all have metaphysical assumptions, but the assumption they're making is that there is no such thing as moral truth or objective moral goods. And therefore, they're studying something they think they can study without even entertaining or in, including the question of, is that a manifestation of a moral good or a moral truth? Um, if you decide that you're going to study learned habits or popular acceptances or snap emotional judgments that people make and call that morality, it seems to me you're required to say, what about it makes it a moral domain? And from my point of view, based on a somewhat different metaphysical assumption, I do believe there are moral truths. I believe there are laws of moral reason and that something's entitled to be called morality if it can plausibly be seen as a manifestation or implementation of a moral truth. So when someone says, I'm disgusted by that, they are not talking about a moral truth. They're simply reporting on their subjective feelings. If they say that's disgusting, if it is a moral claim they're making, then they must be saying that anyone who is reasonable will recognize that they ought to be disgusted by that, and you cannot deny that it's inherently disgusting. 
So there is a dimension that runs from the purely subjective to the purely objective. And when I talk about moral judgments or the moral domain, I'm talking about social life and people's judgments that ultimately are manifestations of a belief they have about moral truth. And therefore, coming to terms with the concept of moral truth is a preliminary to identifying the moral domain. Okay, so a moral judgment is in this sense an expression, sometimes explicit, uh, of a judgment that person X ought to do such and such under these circumstances. And the reason for doing it is that it furthers the realization of some moral good or makes manifest a moral truth. I feel that what's happened in the, in, the, in the area in the social sciences and psychology that is called moral studies is that we now have a kind of Tower of Babel in which people are constructing the domain in very different ways. They're really talking past each other and they're not studying a common object. Um, and they're back to studying judgments people make in which they say that disgusts me or that's wrong. But when people say that's wrong or that's right, you have to know in what sense they are saying it. And I, I have been over the years a critic of Lawrence Kohlberg and his scheme for moral development, but there, is, there are many virtuous aspects to Kohlberg's approach. And one of them is that Kohlberg's research agenda is an attempt to study what do people actually mean when they say that's right or that's wrong. And he claims that before you have a true understanding of the moral domain developmentally, you think when you say that's right or that, that's right, you're simply saying that makes me feel good, okay? Um, the, the word essentially says no more than it pleases me or it doesn't please me. Right means it pleases me, wrong means it doesn't please me. From Kohlberg's view, that is not a moral understanding. That's a pre-moral understanding in which you're very egocentric, and you're merely talking about yourself. You're not representing anything in your judgment that could be seen as an independent domain of the moral. And he goes on to say, after that, as children develop and get older, right and wrong basically means the popular acceptances of significant people in my world or in my group. So if my mother thinks it's, it's right, then it's right. Or if the government in my country says it's right, then it's right. And for him, that also is pre-moral in understanding. It moves from a kind of egocentrism to a socially shared egocentrism in which my group is then seen to simply declare something to be right or wrong. But you haven't yet reached the moral domain from Kohlberg's point of view until you recognize that there are independent moral truths that the human mind is capable of discovering. And only then do you enter true moral judgment in Kohlberg's scheme. Now, I've been a critic of Kohlberg for a variety of reasons, but I think he's, I share with him this metaphysical stance, which says that the moral domain is about moral truths and about laws of moral reason and about things that could be seen as objective goods. And so from that point of view, I don't think you can really put aside the philosophical question. And in fact, I think those who say that are simply rejecting the idea of independent moral truth and tend to merely think they can do descriptive work, often influenced by a dominant Darwinian theory about what's functional and what survives, 
without really addressing whether or not that which survives is moral. In a sense, if it survives, it's moral, ends up being the Darwinian moral principle. Um, and then defending that is something that you've rarely seen done other than assuming everyone wants to survive. But it seems to me that approach actually ultimately makes a travesty of the moral because as long as it produces survival, anything is okay. And the, anything that's okay often ends up meaning behaviors that many people would find immoral for the sake of survival, I'll do this, but they don't necessarily think it's moral because at least in my analyses and the way I think about the moral domain, the folk around the world are cognitivist in their orientation. Very early in life, they at least intuitively believe that when they say something's right, it's more than simply saying, I'm pleasantly affected when I think of it, or um, they, they believe they're in touch with something higher, something transcendental. And I think that cognitivist orientation is a very widespread orientation. Um, so I don't know if I fully have answered your question, but um, I, I do think that um, philosophical work has to be done before you can do the descriptive scientific work. And I think if you reject the domain of moral truth, it's not clear you're studying morality, except to the extent that you're studying people saying that's right or that's wrong. Um, but when they say that, they may be saying nothing more than that's what I'm familiar with, or that's my habit, or that's what we do in our group, uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was a very interesting answer. But uh, let me just add this to my question. So there are people, particularly the more philosophically minded ones, that make the distinction between is, or, is and ought or the is-ought dichotomy. And they <laughs> say that, for example, when we describe or talk about scientific facts, that there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between facts uh, and moral values, let's say. Uh, but that's from a philosophical perspective. But even from, let's say, a psychological, anthropological one, uh, wouldn't you say that uh, nowadays we're studying the several moral sentiments that we have that were, were the result of our evolutionary history through natural selection and other processes like that, even perhaps sexual selection, I'm not sure. But that the moral systems that we create from a cultural perspective and from a social perspective uh, don't uh, derive directly from uh, those moral sentiments that we have evolved? Um, I, first of all, I would say that it's important to recognize that the moral domain is inherently a normative domain. It's on the ought side. That's what it's about. It's about what you ought to do. It's about be feeling that you're in touch with value, okay? And the value um, that you're in touch with, the fact that you're in touch with values and even have that capacity brings up another metaphysical issue, which is whether you do or do not believe that there's a spiritual aspect to human nature. I believe there's a spiritual aspect to human nature and that the source of morality comes from that spiritual aspect, that you are in touch with something higher that's reflected in your own capacity for free will and your own capacity to even have a sense that there are things of value. The material world doesn't give you that. 
there has to be something more than simply materialism. Okay, so this complicates the conversation, of course, because there will be a big divide between those who are philosophical materialists and ultimately reductionists um, who believe that there really is nothing more to the world than physical particles and fields of force and everything else is just an illusion which plays no part in human action. And those who, um, you can call it dualistic if you want, although that's a little bit misleading, but who believe that um, uh, to understand the moral domain, you have to recognize capacities like agency, free will, and a capacity of the human mind, which comes from somewhere, certainly, and may come from evolution, but nevertheless, it's a capacity which allows human beings to actually discover moral truths. And I do think that those discoveries have an effect on, if you want to say evolution and survival, that's fine with me. But I view it as actually an interaction between the material world and call it spiritual. Maybe that's misleading if you have a deeply deistic view of, uh, or, you know, or, um, theistic view of, of religion. I'm not trying to invoke a theistic view of religion. This is not about an old man in the sky pulling the strings on human behavior. It's about a quality of human nature, which is related to our ability to choose things, have free will, and be in touch with value. And I think the spiritual aspect of human nature is deeply embedded in those capacities, which I think are uh, a central driving force in human action. And yes, it's fortunate that doing what's moral can be functional, okay? Uh, but simply because it's functional doesn't make it moral. And I would draw that distinction. On the is-ought distinction, um, you know, I think that one of the amazing things about ordinary language, especially the language of the social order, it, um, it, it, it makes the transition from is-to-ought easy. Um, you say, she's his mother, okay? That's a description, that's an is comment. She's his mother. Now notice, once you just put the world under that descriptor, you put a person under the description, his mother, all sorts of briefs and obligations follow from it. You, you can reasonably say, therefore she ought to care about his strep infection and the 103, you know, degree temperature that child has. For you go from is, the identification of someone as a mother, to ought, the obligations that follow from it. And there's no problem doing that. It's an easy thing to do. And then, of course, you have to specify, if you want to be philosophical and reflective about it, why it is you think that ought should follow from it. And then you're into the world of, you know, you should protect the vulnerable who are under your charge which is one of the laws of moral reason. Um, anyone in the world should protect the vulnerable under their charge. And if you then say to someone, well, why should you protect the vulnerable under your charge? At that point, you do get to what John Hyde has labeled dumbfounding, because people will look at you and say, I have to explain to you why you should protect the vulnerable who are under your charge. There's nothing more to say about it. It's self-evident, okay? And they're not, saying it because it's an emotional reaction. Okay. Dumbfounding, in my view, is not about emotional reactions. It's about coming to the limits of reason where something is recognized as obvious and a self-evident truth and nothing more needs to be said about it.
that's why you're dumbfounded because there is nothing more to be said. And if someone said, well, I'll tell you what, I don't think, I think you should harm the vulnerable who are under your charge. You'd look at them and think this is where this person, they don't understand my language. You probably, you'd say, you don't really understand the language we're using, right? Here's what these words mean. Do you really understand it? And if they continue to say, yeah, I understand it. And they convinced you of that. And they went on to say, yeah, you should harm the vulnerable who are under your charge, um, who you're there to protect. You would think they're out of touch with moral truth and reality. Mm-hmm. So I do think that the that everyday language, the language of status, role, and the way in which we describe what is in the social world has internal to it um, the ought normative side, and the moral domain is about that normative side. Mm-hmm. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> No, no, that, that was all very interesting. Okay, so let's get a bit more into your work specifically. So in your work, you identify three main moral foundations, autonomy, community and divinity. So could you please talk a little bit about each of them and to what aspects of human sociality and personhood is each of them related to? Okay, so... Yes, I I believe that the moral domain is broader, more encompassing than the approach to morality or the domain as it has been typically defined in, let's say, forgive the expression, Western psychological research on the moral domain, which I think has largely been restricted to what I call the ethics of autonomy and has focused on concepts like Oh, harm, rights, justice, equality, um, and autonomy, of course, liberty, so um, or self-determination. And I believe that that I I have expanded the domain based on empirical research on the way in which people make what I view as credible moral judgments around the world to also include what I call the ethics of community and the ethics of divinity. Central to this tripartite scheme, this big three, as it is sometimes called, of morality, is a focus on conceptions of the self, okay? And that's what the the scheme is organized around. The notion is that the ethics of autonomy highlights an aspect of the self, let's call it the self, as a preference structure. Individuals have preferences. There are things they want. And the ethics of autonomy basically focuses on individual preference realization and organizing a social world in which people are free to have the things they want and to pursue them as long as they don't interfere with the things other people want. And so you have a world built out of a kind of individualism with people coming to think about what their preferences are and having the liberty and resources to non-interference in their pursuits to realize their preferences. Um, I believe that the ethics of autonomy plays a very large part in my subcultural world and probably in the subcultural world of many academics in Europe, North America, and so forth. You see it early in life. You know, when you watch an adult in my cultural, subcultural world walk up to a two-year-old child and say, what do you want for dinner? You are communicating to that two-year-old. 
that having wants is important. And you are showing that others, including an adult who has a lot of power over that child, is going to defer to what that child's preferences happen to be. And you then cultivate a population of individuals who are always thinking about what they want and wanting to have the things they want and are very aware of the idea of being free to pursue them and not interfering with other people's ability to do it. And conflicts, of course, arise that have to be adjudicated when two people are pursuing the same thing and there is a conflict between having it. But it's a world of preference seeking for individuals. That's the ethics of autonomy. And its regulatory concepts are things like equality and not harming others, um, um, freedom, and things of this type. The ethics of community and the ethics of divinity each have their own aspect of the self, which gets privileged or highlighted when you develop that kind of ethic. The ethics of community is built around central regulatory moral concepts like duty, hierarchy, interdependency, loyalty, um, and it assumes a self that is a status bearer, is, is a role, is a position typically within a community and typically in hierarchical interdependency with other roles. So you're the you know, first violinist in the orchestra, you're the conductor of the orchestra, you're the captain of the ship, you're not the captain of the ship, you have a different position on the ship, you're the professor, you're the student, you're the parent, you're the child. Each of those are roles and people think of themselves in terms of what roles they occupy and their sense of who they are is tied up with the idea that they have a duty or obligation to realize the briefs that go with the position they're in. And they recognize that these are generally interdependent, complicated role systems of in-groups. So it, it requires a distinction between who's in my family and who isn't, who's a, who's a member of this orchestra and who isn't, who's an officer in this, on this particular ship and who isn't. In-group, out-group distinctions become very important as does hierarchical interdependency and notions of respect and deference and loyalty and protection and all these kinds of moral concepts get highlighted. Um, and then there's a third domain which I call the ethics of divinity. And there the central notions are concepts like purity, sanctity, pollution, cleanliness, the sacred order's relationship to the natural order. And it's built around a concept of the self as spiritual. When I was talking about the spiritual aspects of human nature, the idea is that every individual has in them a sliver of the divine. Um, the, there's a beautiful metaphor that Gnostic religious traditions have in which you imagine there once was a kind of unity which is represented by this beautiful crystal ball and it drops and shatters and each of us has one little sliver of that original unified spiritual crystal ball and um, the notion there is that we recognize each other as persons because we see in the other that what shall we say that spark of the divine that ability for free will that recognition of value that sense of being in touch with something transcendental 
So in the community that I've worked in on and off for many years in India, which is a Hindu temple town and pilgrimage site, the ethics of community and ethics of divinity are highly elaborated. It's not that there isn't an ethics of autonomy too, but I would say that that's not the privileged domain. And people are very conscious of living up to the briefs, having the duty and obligation to be the best, to live up to the telos of the position or status they have. And they spend a lot of time thinking about the sanctity of their body, what they eat and how the food is prepared. Eating ends up being a kind of offering to a deity in you. There's a kind of imminent notion of the divine. Every per There's a world soul and there's a personal soul and they're seen as extensions of each other. And many activities turn on highlighting the notion of purity and pollution or of sanctity and, and desanctification. So that's the general scheme. The notion is everyone's got all of them, but they end up being implemented and privileged or made central in different degrees in different traditions. And those are manifest in everyday practice. I mean, just looking at a family meal in the United States and the contrast between food preparation and consumption in a secular community like the one I live in in Hyde Park around the University of Chicago versus how it operates in the temple town in India, um, you can't help but see different manifestations of these three types of ethics. Now, I want to emphasize that this is about three different concepts of the self. And the big three has been expanded and, and um, interpreted in somewhat different ways and, um, and used for different purposes. So for example, if you move away from having it be a theory about aspects of the self to simply being about or only being about those moral regulatory concepts, then there are many regulatory concepts and you can go ahead and you try to examine where do they come from? Are they innate? You know, uh, what's the, what, what, how do they evolve? That's a somewhat different question that's being answered than the big three is meant to answer. The big three is about selves. And um, I believe that every individual has multiple aspects to their selves. There is a self that is the preference structure self having wants and pursuing them. There is a self that is the self as having a status and standing within a community that's usually a hierarchically organized one with in-out distinctions. And, and your sense of dignity comes from performing that role or that brief as best you can. That's its telos. Everywhere you go in the world, in every language, you're gonna find role and status concepts. And every person, I think, intuitively, even if they're an atheist, okay, even if they reject a theistic view of, 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 of the world, I do believe they intuitively have a sense of the spiritual element in themselves. They may intellectually, philosophically want to deny it. They may become philosophical materialists and have a system which says we have to reduce everything down to physical particles and my sense of free will is merely illusory. Yet, when they live in a social world, they are exercising agency, they have a sense of value, they are making judgments which reflect that, and um, the degree to which um, issues of sanctity and purity are salient to them may vary enormously and do, but you will notice them behaving in ways sometimes which reflect purity concepts as well. 
They may go to a funeral, come back to meet with a family that's mourning and wash their hands. Okay, um, And there's a way in which cleanliness is next to godliness, that expression manifests itself in all sorts of ways in our lives. So that's a brief primer on the big three. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And you refer to very interesting things. And I have several follow up questions to all of, the, of what you just said. But the first one perhaps is, uh, so at a certain point, you refer to the fact that all people and all societies uh, share these three moral foundations, all of, all of people uh, have them. But uh, so would you say that they are innate but then according to the environmental conditions and when i'm referring to the environment i'm including of course uh, cultural conditions then people are led to put more emphasis perhaps in one of them in comparison with the others like for example as we do in the west that he, that we value much more uh, things related to autonomy than perhaps community and divinity i would put it exactly that way i think that um you know let me step back um there is a philosophical position which I've sometimes, a tri which I've sometimes talked about, which I call Confucianism, and that's not to be confused with Confucianism. This is a philosophy of both research and I think of life, which has a small set of central maxims or principles. Um, the first maxim of Confucianism is the notion that the knowable world is incomplete if seen from any one point of view, incoherent if seen from all points of view at once, and empty if you try to see it from nowhere in particular. Okay. So the choice in life and in scholarship is between incompleteness, incoherence, and emptiness. That may sound like a somewhat tragic choice, and I suppose it is, but we are embodied, we're situated in a time and place. We can't be everywhere at once. Um, so I think that is the tragic choice. And in the choice between emptiness, incoherence, and incompleteness, I can never choose incoherence. That's the end of all intelligent conversation and attempt to understand things. Emptiness is something that some scholars adopt. People who call themselves structuralists try to get to a distance on things so that all that's left is abstract structure or mathematical structure, but it's a very dehumanizing distance. And I always opt for incompleteness and then try to stay on the move between different points of view and try to remember what I learned from seeing the world from that stance, seeing the world from that stance. So uh, that's where the variety is. But with back to your question, the second principle of Confucianism is what I call original multiplicity. I think you come into the world complicated. You're not a tabla rasa. Um, you have a deep past that's already available to you at birth. And I think it is the case that of a vast set of things you already have in somewhat structured form, only a subset gets carried forward in any particular tradition. So you meet the tradition. That is the environment that you were talking about in this broad sense. It's like a resonance system, a much broader set of potentialities and structures come into the world. They're already there. 
They come from deep past. I'm neutral on how, I don't think people are very good at explaining how they got there. I think that's a mystery. I don't think that evolutionary hand-waving fills in how it got there other than saying it must, it's, you know, it's deep time and selection is not to me an adequate explanation of the particulars involved. But nevertheless, it's coming from the deep past. It's already there, we inherit it in some sense. People who believe in reincarnating souls in India have the same kind of general theory. You come into the world, an old soul, not a new soul. You have some kind of memory of past lives, which is sort of like taking an evolutionary view on things and where they came from. But then only a, a small subset or part of the full array gets carried forward, is privileged, is institutionalized, is named, is labeled, has theories about it in the particular historical tradition you're part of. A very nice analogy to this, which I sometimes use, has to do with phonetic detection in language. And there's a fair amount of research on infants' capacity to hear language-specific phonemic distinctions. Like in North Indian languages, there is a distinction between an aspirated and an unaspirated T sound. So in English, at least, when you say T, if you, if you say to yourself T, and I know you're multilingual, but if you just say T, I think you'll notice that your tongue goes to the roof of your mouth somewhat forward. In the North Indian languages, they have a different distinction that's meaningful in the language between T and T, in which the tongue is either more forward in the roof of the mouth or further back. That's a distinction that doesn't exist in English. And English speakers have a hard time learning the phonetics of North Indian languages because they can't hear or produce reliably that, that distinction between t and t when they're speaking words in Hindi or Oriya, let's say. Um, it turns out that an American 18-month-old hears it. And you, there are nice experiments showing that if you habituate an 18-month-old to a particular sound and then introduce the Indian distinctions, the child notices it. And that's true for 18-months-old, no matter what culture they're in. They can hear the language-specific contrast in all human languages. Their own parents can't hear it, okay? But when they, and it's like they have a, the full complement of phonemic distinctions, like a wiring diagram, is available to them at birth. Then they learn their mother tongue, like English, let's say, and it, it gets peripheralized, the capacity. Okay. So then now all of a sudden it's lost. These are called maintenance loss models in developmental psychology. You have more that's there at the beginning and then part of it is maintained and part of it is lost. And I think that's what you've described essentially in your question to me. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that there may be a critical period so that, let's say, an American child is living in North India for the first three or four years of their life, and they've actually started to learn a North Indian language, and then they go back home to America and they lose the language. But as an adult, they want to learn a North Indian language. They somehow, by activating the use of it early in life, have a much easier time picking it up as adults. But the general picture is we have a lot that's there early in life and only a subset gets carried forward. I don't think what's peripheralized totally disappears. 
I, in my own life, experience doing field work in India, after being there for a long time, after trying to master their words and concepts for things, after seeing and participating in their practices, I begin to activate some of the moral judgments and, um, you know, and um, feelings even that the natives have, quote unquote, the natives have. And I think I can do that because they've been there all along, peripheralized in my own psyche. And now I've done enough of the work to get them online or center stage and they start operating. You know, I start worrying about karmic things that I didn't worry about before. I think I start thinking about, my God, you reap what you sow. I mean, is the past going to catch up with me? I mean, things of this type, which were may not have been active, but they become active. Okay, very well. Uh, and uh, what do you, what would you say Jonathan Hyde has done when he expanded your moral foundations? And I think that at least in regards to autonomy and community, he subdivided them into two others. That is, he subdivided autonomy into care slash arm and fairness and community into loyalty to the group and respect for authority. Divinity, I, I mean, he, he simply changed the name, I think, to sanctity slash purity. And then he also added liberty for, <laughs> for the libertarians in this case. But what, what would you say he did there when he expanded your original moral foundations? Well, I think, that, first of all, I think that he's done a tremendous job. It's a nice contribution to have, first of all, made the scheme highly visible and applied it uh, in a very important domain, which a lot of people care about. Um, there was another former student of mine. Uh, you know, John was a postdoctoral student of mine. Um, and by the way, Alan Fisk, too, was one of my first students many years ago. I know we're going to probably talk about Alan Fisk's scheme as well. Um, and there are several other students who've done great work on the moral domain, Joan Miller being one, Nancy Muke being one, <clears throat> Lena Jensen, who I mentioned because <clears throat> she early on started applying the scheme to liberal versus conservative kinds of distinctions in in. Um, Protestant religious tradition. She did her own PhD thesis, applying it to um, religious fundamentalists or evangelical Protestants and liberal Protestants to see which of the big three were privileged in the way they, they addressed common moral dilemmas and problems. And I think um, what John has done, and he's quite explicit about having subdivided the domain to create five domains originally, um, is try to find a way to merge the, the big three with evolutionary psychological approaches, and especially to try and think about innate foundations and the functionality of those concepts. In doing that, however, of course, he's moved away from the underlying logic of the scheme, which was to categorize selves. So he's not trying to come up with six different selves. He's trying to come up with six different fundamentals for moral judgment, um, and then to link it to theories that have to do with evolutionary adaptiveness and so forth. And I view it as a tremendous contribution, but, um, and it, its inspiration, as he notes, came out of the big three. Um, but if you're interested in selves, um, 
I think there's a difference between moral foundations theory and and um, the big three. Um, I mean, that's my main comment. And I would also say that um, I, I think that the libertarians are interesting because it's hard to classify them on a left-right distinction, uh, in the least in the United States, political rhetoric or discourse. Um, you know, are they conservative? Are they liberal? There are many ways in which li libertarians, who are sometimes called neoconservatives, are pretty similar to philosophical anarchists. And I, I, I emphasize philosophical an anarchists. I mean, people who believe there are only very narrow areas where we need a state regulating society and they prefer limited, just as the libertarians, there's a preference for very limited government um, and liberty ends up being a central concept. So there was some need, if you're going to think about the political spectrum, to figure out what to do um, with the libertarians. And that may be one of the inspirations for introducing it as another foundation. I think you know, I would put liberty in the ethics of autonomy. I think autonomy is about self-determination and the liberty to have the things you want. Um, so I would keep it there. I wouldn't differentiate it out. But the difference in approach, I think, basically turns on purpose and objectives. Um, my objective was characterizing theories of the self. And I think his was getting to foundational moral concepts and then trying to see how evolutionary psychology and moral psychology and cultural analysis all might be brought together. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's one of the distinctions, as you just said. But um, perhaps th that last part about the libertarians and his need to include a new moral foundation that is liberty just because uh, just for them, <laughs> just for them to have this moral foundation. Uh, wouldn't you say that perhaps uh, that might indicate the, that he, he was a bit too focused on how, uh, pe uh, on how people that were part of certain political parties or political tribes uh, were constructed in terms of their moral foundations. And I, I mean, th that could, could have been why he in the end included uh, the moral foundation of liberty. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think I would say he was too focused. I would say that what he was trying to do was to apply um, a scheme that both broadened one's understanding of the moral domain, um, in part so that you could recognize people who were members of different factions in a society as morally sensible people who might do things for good reasons. Um, and he did that by applying, you know, a existing scheme that he was elaborating. So I don't think it, it was, there was a problem with doing it. I think you just have to view it as one particular application of a scheme. And once you get into wanting to try and help, let's say Americans, for example, who are often highly parochial and living in bu political bubbles of their own, yet are coexisting in a single polity or society, you're trying to help them um, have the capacity to step into the world of the other and to um, have the moral language for being able to do that and recognize, as I said, the other as a morally sensible person who does things for reasons. So 
he was articulating the underlying reasons. And I think that probably people recognize liberty as a good. And um, and he was, I, I you know, I, this is somewhat speculative because I, you know, I'm, um, I'm not John Haidt speaking for John Haidt. I'm just an observer of, you know, the elaboration of the scheme and its uptake. Um, I think he um, came to recognize that when he talked about, you know, the liberal left versus the conservative right and started characterizing which of those moral foundational principles seem to be used more or less or exclusively or more comprehensively um, because libertarians were called neoconservatives rightly or wrongly it's probably a very misleading title because they basically are 19th century liberals invoking the liberalism of the past but they're called neoconservatives so if you start saying here's what happens on the conservative right versus what happens on the liberal left and there you have a group called neoconservatives who don't look like what's happening on the conservative right, you have to deal with it somehow. And um, it's a recognition that there actually is another moral foundation. And it does suggest that it's not so simple to have a left-right distinction. Um, I mean, I, you know, long ago, I, I myself was talking from time to time about what I called, you know, the liberal virtues and the conservative virtues and notions like loyalty and respect for authority, um, you know, things of this type, in-group, out-group distinctions, the ethics of community type notions were ones I did associate with more conservative thinking and um, equality and big emphasis on harm and equality. Um, I was associating with the liberal left and I think it's, um, not unreasonable to go in that direction. Um, I don't think that John's scheme should be seen as merely a reflection of parochial political issues in the United States. I mean, I think it has much broader application and I think what he's done is applied it to current um, tensions and conflicts within American society and perhaps more broadly. Um, and um, one of the reasons I think it's be gotten a lot of attention is because of the currency of those issues. And that's just fine. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. Uh, so uh, I've also interviewed on my show, Dr. Oliver Scott Curry, who is an evolutionary anthropologist that also does a lot of work on human morality. Uh, and I mean, it's very interesting that when I asked you to talk about your three moral foundations, you refer to the fact that the, the primary goal of them was to understand how people elaborate or sort of elaborate their sense of self and that they not really exhaust all the possible domains of human morality. And I've just now referred to Scott Curry because at a certain point in our interview, I talked about uh, his periodic table of ethics that include things that, for example, Jonathan Hyde doesn't include in his moral foundations. And two big examples that he gave me were uh, kin selection and reciprocal altruism. So, I, I mean, do, do you agree with this view uh, and that 
there are probably other domains of human morality that we still have to discover. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, focusing on kinship, focusing on reciprocal altruism, um, I don't think reciprocal altruism is something that's absent from the moral foundation scheme or my own scheme. Um, but I think that it's important to recognize that not every approach is about everything. These, the approaches we're talking about are about objective moral goods, not about the pragmatics of application of these systems to any particular domain of social interaction, like the family um, or any other one. So I think it's a very important project to go ahead and try and identify these domains in which ethical notions or moral notions make themselves manifest and how they're organized. Um, that's an important contribution. Um, I think that what's missing perhaps both from the big three and uh, the moral foundation scheme. Um, I mean, it's, I, I, it's not missing in any um, critical sense because the pragmatics of applying these things and specifying how family dynamics works or how any or how politics works or how any other domain works is um, exactly what you'd like from an application point of view. But perhaps what has been understated is even deeper laws of moral reason or rules of moral reason. And um, and I think that, you know, being gratitude for gifts or for patronage shown to you and the reciprocal altruism that's involved in that would be one of those rules. And there are many other laws of moral reason, which I view as, you know, universals. I should say, by the way, just to... Um, to avoid misunderstanding. I've noticed over the decades that I'm, my own work is sometimes viewed as relativism. And um, I don't view myself as a relativist. I view myself actually as someone who believes in universalism without the uniformity. That's the slogan I would use. And I do think there are deep rules of moral reason, which are universals, like treat like cases alike in different cases differently or you should protect the vulnerable who are under your charge, which I mentioned earlier, or you should reciprocate gifts received, or um, you know, if you see someone in great distress and you can help them at little cost to yourself, you should do so. Um, or you know, given a choice between two different goods, choose the greater one. I mean, there's a whole set of things of this type, which like logical principles, um, or mathematical principles, I think, are deep and have are universal in that sense. Um, it's just that the application of any of these principles um, always has other supplementary concepts and local knowledge that produces divergences in people's judgments about cases. And so, you know, the same deep principle may be behind the judgment in the United States that the family estate should be equally divided between daughters and sons. And, um, and that same principle may be operating in an Indian community like the one I work in, in which they do not believe you should divide the family estate be equally between daughters and sons. And both of them are respecting the same principle, which is treat like cases alike and different cases differently. Just that one of them has a fair understanding of the relevant differences that lead to the sons 
inheriting more than the daughters because of the kinship system and the morality of the kinship system, because daughters are going to marry out and move into their husband's families and take charge of those families. They're going to change their kinship affiliation. They're not going to have responsibility to take care of their parents in old age. The sons are. So once you begin to understand the local kinship structure and how it operates, you can see how anyone might agree that, yes, you know, we, you should treat the, the inheritance shouldn't be equally divided because the responsibilities are not equal and you're just treating different cases differently, which is compatible with the principle of justice. Um, so abstract principles that are universal, by the time you come down to historical situations in particular groups and local contexts, often result in very different judgments about what the right thing to do might be in that circumstance. And that's where the lack of uniformity emerges. You end up having a set of abstract moral principles like the ones I mentioned. And by the time you get down to the reality of their application, enough local knowledge leads you to divergent conclusions about what the right thing to do is. And that's one of the reasons it's important to step into the so-called native point of view. Because if you understand enough about the local situation and how it's faced by those who are engaged in it, you might come to see how what they're doing is the right thing to do, even though it wouldn't be the right thing to do in your world. And one of the great responsibilities of anthropology, I believe, is, you know, this is almost a hackneyed comment, but I believe anthropology's mission, at least in part, is to help people overcome ethnocentrism, or at least the dark side of ethnocentrism. There's a light side to ethnocentrism, too. Everyone has to be ethnocentric. If you're going to live in any local world, you have to take the perspective of the world you're in and be fluent at being ethnocentric, which is just being a native in your world. But when you meet other worlds, if you look at their world and react to it as though what they're doing is happening in your world, that's, a, that's the dark side of ethnocentrism. You're assimilating their world to your world and you often get them wrong and you often end up making judgments that demonize them because what they're doing elicits in you strong feelings of revulsion or disgust or indignation because you are reacting to it as though it were happening in your world without fully understanding their world and why when it happens in that world, it might actually make moral sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so earlier in our conversation, you already referred to Alan Fisk, and I will have him on the show in the near future. But I would like to ask you, what is the relationship between your three big moral foundations and the relational models that he proposed? And in this case, just for the audience, the relational models are communal sharing, authority ranking, equality matching, and market pricing. So do, do, do your moral foundations and his relational models complement each other or, or what? So I would, um, I'm very familiar with his scheme. Alan Fisk is, you know, has an erudition in social theory that's almost unsurpassed and has been working on this issue for a very long time. Even at the time he was doing his PhD thesis, he was developing this scheme. So I'm quite familiar with it. And I think it's a tremendous contribution to social psychology and to the study of social norms. Um, 
I don't necessarily think it's actually an attempt to get at moral truths. Um, I think what he's characterizing is largely the ethics of community and the way in which social communities get organized around peer structures, around in-out groups, around hierarchical structures. Um, and in a sense, it is one of the richest schemes we have for thinking about variety and social norms. I'm not at all sure, and you'll have to ask him when you interview him, It'll be, I'll be interested to see his answer. <clears throat> I'm not sure that Alan believes in objective moral truths. Um, I, I, I'm not sure he believes in or is committed to that metaphysical position I mentioned in which you actually believe there's a spiritual nature to human beings. There is a, a, a domain of morality that's independent of human understanding of it um, and that um, social life is a manifestation of moral goods. I think he believes that this is just all about maintaining your role relationships. And that ends up being, in a way, the, the definition of what's good. Um, and so I'm not sure he has a, another level that would offer criticism of uh, any particular kind of social arrangement. I think the social arrangement for him is descriptive and not particularly normative. And in that sense, he's not doing ex precisely the same kind of his aims are somewhat different, let's put it that way, in constructing that scheme. But if you want to study uh, social norms, I think looking at in-group, out-group, looking at up-down relations, uh, looking at peer relations or egalitarian relations, and then thinking about um, the whole concept of individuals in a marketplace and what relationship that has to these social norms um, is a useful and very challenging approach to, so, to social analysis. People, of course, who are in economics, or at least some people who are in economics, probably believe everything is market pricing, and they will be tempted to reduce all the other three to contractual relationships um, that um, operate in some kind of market-based system. Alan, um, I think to his credit, um, refuses to um, subordinate the other three to market pricing alone. And hence, um, the obligations that go with certain kinds of social norms are seen to have an independence from merely the logic of uh, market exchange. But I guess I would say that, um, um, you know, I'm I, I love his scheme. I think it's extremely useful, but I don't think we're necessarily in the same domain of discourse if it's about moral obligation per se. He may think moral obligation is living up to the norms associated with those relationships, period. Um, and I think there's more. Okay, anyway, I will have him on the show, as I already said, and I will take the opportunity to ask him about all of these issues. Okay, so now let's... Yes, ask him, ask him if there's moral truth or not, and see what he says. <laughs> okay, okay, I will put a note on, uh, on my document to, to ask him about moral relativism. 
Okay, so uh, let's now move on to another topic and perhaps expand the conversation a little bit because since the very beginning of the interview and in the introduction I referred to this term at least three times, that is cultural psychology. So uh, what is really cultural psychology about for people that don't know? What, what aspects of human society does it focus on? Well, it focuses on human psychology, mostly, and it's interested in differences in the mentalities of people by virtue of growing up in a particular group or a particular historical tradition. So its subject matter is the mental. So it studies mentalities. And by the mental, which I suppose is roughly equivalent to the psychological, um, I mean what people know, think, want, feel, and value as good or bad. Um, so that's its domain. Difference, and, it, and its focus is on differences. Um, it doesn't deny similarities or universals, but that's not what cultural psychology is about. It's looking for those features of what people know, think, feel, want, and value that are different across human populations. And it's interested in studying how those differences arise, largely through participation in the practices and customs of the society, which themselves has a, have already made salient and privileged certain aspects of that original multiplicity that I was referring to earlier. So that's its subject matter. Um, you know, it's interested in um, beliefs. In fact, it tends to view action as stemming from beliefs and values that are distinctive of people in different populations. Um, the fact that, you know, when I go to a funeral in the Hindu community I'm in, people are doing things to assist a soul to go on its transmigratory journey is part of its cultural psychology, to um, see the importance in this community of respectful restraint as an emotion um, and the way in which people defer to others um, is part of their psychology. Um, emphasizing what do you want for dinner tonight, as I did when talking about a parent talking to a two-year-old, is part of trying to understand why Pursuing wants and becoming an expert on your own wants is part of a cultural psychology of particular groups. Um, so, you know, it, it, so that its domain are feelings, wants, beliefs, thought processes, but the focus being on the distinctive aspects of them. Another way of putting it is that it's the study of ideas about what's true, good, beautiful, and efficient that are made manifest in the customs of different groups with a focus on the way those customs differ from each other. So, for example, you know, and so, some of these things are very mundane things on the surface. So, you know, I've done some studies of who sleeps by whom at night in the family, sleeping arrangements. Once you get into looking at the arrangement of people in sleeping spaces at night, 
you begin to see enormous, you see some similarities, but you also see some fascinating differences in where people sleep and in why they're sleeping there. So for example, the emphasis on promoting self-reliance in your child, which is part of the logic and rationale for separating children at night and putting them in a separate bed, uh, maybe in a dark room to sleep alone, is not something which is going to be emphasized in the Indian community. Quite the contrary, they view the typical sleeping arrangement in my own world as a form of parental neglect or child abuse to have a child in another room wanting to get in bed with its parents and telling it no, it has to stay in its own bed, all as a way of promoting independence and, and self-reliance. Um, from their point of view, protecting the vulnerable is much more important than self-reliance. In fact, they want to promote interdependency, not self-reliance. And you know, in, our, in, in my own subculture, adults who are partners have this notion of the, what I call the sacred couple. Um, they want to be alone and together in bed at night and their bedroom becomes a kind of sacred space. You're not allowed to penetrate if you're a child unless there's an emergency. And there they're creating a certain kind of intimacy um, that is not seen as important in other cultural traditions. So there are, you know, how food is prepared, who eats with whom, relationships between kinsmen and the family. Um, in, in, in extended joint family households in the Indian community I work in, there are elaborate avoidance and joking relationship between members of the same family. So for example, a woman and her husband's elder brother avoid each other and will not speak to each other. Even if they're co-present, they won't speak to each other. If one walks in the room, the other will back out. There's a whole elaborate code that goes on there. Well, what's the psychology that's operating there? What is it that they know, believe, feel, want, and value that leads them to behave that way, which is very different than the way in which people who think this free affiliation between everybody all the time as a potential uh, might think. So that's, that's broadly what cultural psychology is about. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So since I think that we could say that cultural psychology is interested in studying the interplay between certain cultural aspects and the corresponding psychological basis for them, let's say. Would, would you say, uh, or I mean, are you also interested in things like, and I'm asking you this because I already had people on the show like Dr. Robert Boyd, are you also interested in things like cultural evolution and gene culture coevolution? That is the way genes affect uh, how co culture gets expressed and also the environments that we create from a cultural perspective might also have some impact on natural evolution. Well, um, I'm certainly interested in cultural evolution to the extent that um, I'm interested in what's happened over historical time in cultural formations of one type or another. Um, when I was in graduate school, I had an advisor who was a famous psychological anthropologist named John Whiting, who, um, when he talked about cultural evolution, believed that there actually was a curvilinear change that had taken place in cultural evolution, such that um, 
hunter-gatherer migratory societies were more like post-industrial societies like our own than either was like sedentary, intensive agricultural societies. And um, he would talk about a number of different features, and one can add to them. So, for example, I mentioned training children to become self-reliant, which is something that's much more likely to happen in a hunter-gatherer migratory society um, where you want your kids to go explore the environment and try out new things um, and is likely to happen in my own world, our world. But when you get into, you know, intensive agricultural sedentary societies in various parts of the world, you raise your kids more to be respectful of authority, to be obedient, to follow the rules. There are often good reasons for doing that in each of these cases. It's, you know, sometimes you can have a philosophy which is nothing ventured, nothing gained, which is, I think, happens in our society, very entrepreneurial attitude, and also in hunter-gatherer societies. You can have an attitude which is nothing ventured, nothing lost, which makes a lot of sense when you have heavy investments in certain things and you don't want kids messing around and doing things that might be very destructive. And there are some anthropologists, um, Barry Bacon and Child, who actually did this kind of comparative research on cultures. So there are stories to be told about cultural evolution. Now, the deeper time story about gene-culture interactions, um, I mean, the non-reductive interactive feature of that, I think, is generally appealing. I myself, as I said, believe that you come into the world complex, that there are deep time inputs. Um, but I also think that um, the particulars of gene culture interaction um, are not things I myself study. Um, and um, I often find um, just so stories coming out of Darwinian speculation about these things not particularly satisfying. But the general project, you know, seems fine to me. Um, the, um, I think, I do think that mind and culture are intertwined with each other. Um, the gene part I'll leave to others to do. The, um, uh, you know, I, as, as I think I emphasized earlier, I don't think you come into the world a blank slate, um, which means that it can't be that culture is everything if you mean something external. You have at least a set of complex concepts that you already have. Um, I mean, even if you are a radical learning theorist, empiricist learning theorist, you at least believe that people come into the world with associational principles already there inherited such that things that coexist in time and space are associated in their minds um, as causal connections. And that's not something that culture teaches them. That's something that the human capacity to learn um, enables whatever cultural processes are there. So there's always something prior. And Theorists differ on how much is prior and what in particular is prior. I'd go way beyond just the associational principles often associated with Locke. Um, and I, you know, when I was talking about phonetic detection, you already have, I think, coming into the world, the capacity to pick up these language-specific phonemic contrasts, no matter who you are. That's a pretty rich inheritance from the deep past. 
um, its functionality in a, as I said, in a gene culture interactional pattern. Um, you know, there are some nice work being done, but that's not what I'm doing. Okay, very well. So now let's move on to the last topic of our conversation today. That is a very contentious one nowadays. That is multi multiculturalism. So particularly now in the West, people, at least in the political sphere, have been worrying a lot about multiculturalism and things like that. So could you tell us what is cultural pluralism and also explain the concept of multiculturalism before we move on to the problems that derive from it? So multiculturalism um, is a very polysemous word. It has many meanings and people use it in many ways and it has many evocative and provocative connotations. Um, I should report that many years ago, I was invited to give a series of lectures in Paris, and um, they asked me to um, give the titles of the lectures. And one of those lectures had the word multiculturalism in it, one of the titles for one of the lectures. And my French host said, I don't think you should use this word in your title. Multiculturalism is an American concept. It's not a French concept. Okay. Um, and that's revealing um, because, you know, the, in, in France, um, the idea of having parochial traditions that don't subordinate themselves to the state um, is seen as threatening. And um, I sometimes think that what is seen as enriching the social scene in the United States, like we have a Chinatown, we have a Greek town, we have in Little Italy, in New York or Chicago, the emergence of such clusters of concentrations of people who come from a particular tradition in many European countries, Northern European countries is seen as threatening and against their conception of citizenship. Okay. So that's the evocative, provocative side of multiculturalism. In the United States, the term gets used in exactly opposite ways. There are some people who will use multiculturalism to refer, let's say, to the Native American sovereignty agenda, where you end up having 500 plus different tribal entities that view themselves as nation states within the United States. And that's called multiculturalism. The same word is used for what's called the inclusion agenda, which is an attempt to essentially bring minority groups like African-Americans or Latinos in the United States into the middle or upper middle class mainstream, which essentially is an assimilation agenda. So you have multiculturalism being used to make people more uniform and you have multiculturalism used to create a plurality of different tribal entities, each with their own sovereignty. Um, so I have to be clear, when I talk about multiculturalism, I simply mean it descriptively. And I mean that within a particular country or polity, there exists a variety of factions or groups who have different historical traditions based on somewhat different beliefs and values. 
that's multiculturalism. And the question is, can you organize a multicultural society or not? What kind of political formations would permit the maximal amount of diversity in groups? So, for example, in the United States, you know, we have the Amish community. Okay? The Amish in the United States came out of Europe, Switzerland, for example. They were, viewed, they were persecuted. They were viewed as a heterodox cult in the 16th, 17th century. Um, they were Anabaptists. They rejected the concept of infant baptism. This was seen as a great heresy. They rejected institutionalized churches. They were persecuted. They came to the United States. The Amish live in somewhat insular communities within the United States today. That to me is a mark of multiculturalism. We have Hasidic Jewish communities. The Satmar Hasidim came out of Hungary um, post-Holocaust. Um, they have their own Rebbe. They have a set of beliefs that um, lead them to, to study, the males study Torah 12 hours a day. They've created a community in upstate New York that's 100% Satmar Hasidim. Um, and if you go there, you will feel like you are living in a shtetl in 18th or 19th century Hungary. They dress like 18th century Hungary. They have Yiddish as their first language. Um, they have sex role differentiation. Um, their goal uh, is to produce large Jewish families. Women value motherhood and reproduction uh, in ways that are quite distinctive. They probably have the largest family size of any group in the United States. That's multiculturalism for me. And within the United States, we have, for a variety of reasons, and given our political structure and our history, made space that allows such groups to carry forward their way of life to some extent. Um, so that's what I mean by multiculturalism. Descriptively, it's a description of a country or polity um, in which there's some degree of commitment to allowing distinctive groups to be committed to and carry forward their distinctive way of life, including their beliefs and values. There's a correspondence between Thomas Jefferson, one of our early and very important presidents, and a Jewish rabbi, who I believe must have been a Sephardic rabbi. His last name was Demoto. And it was on the occasion in 1820 of the creation of, I believe, the second consecrated Jewish synagogue in the United States. It was in Savannah, Georgia. And the rabbi sent his sermon to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And I've seen the paragraph response from Thomas Jefferson to the rabbi. And what he said was, he welcomed this Jewish population in the United States and he said, isn't it interesting that when it comes to religion, and I would extend this to culture too, um, the maxim for social life should be divided we stand. It's the opposite of the maxim united we stand, divided we fall, which is sometimes invoked in the civic realm. But he was saying when it comes to religion and as I said, culture, in a multicultural society, there's some degree of commitment to the notion that divided you stand. Namely, you make space for diversity. 
And you don't want any one group imposing its view on all the other groups coercively, because that just creates disharmony, resentment, blowback, and potential conflict. So that's the challenge of multiculturalism. It doesn't mean that every polity is going to be multicultural. I sometimes think when you look at Europe, Europe is composed of a lot of what some people call ethno-national states. There are populations who actually believe the state was there to carry forward their way of life. Um, I think the Danes believe the Danish government is there for Danes. And when Moroccans show up in Denmark or Turks, it creates a certain kind of problem because they really have a background assumption of not having a multicultural society, but having a somewhat homogeneous society. And you're seeing that in Denmark today, where there are all sorts of top-down attempts at forced assimilation into a one particular way of life. I mean, I've read not so long ago of um, enforcement of required socialization of very young children um, without their parents, even preschool, to try and get the kids to essentially become Danish culturally. Um, so, you know, different polities face different kinds of problems. The United States has a somewhat different history. There's at least a story about the country as a land of immigrants and dissidents and people who were heterodox and objecting to the orthodoxies in Europe. And um, at some point, the United States thought of itself as a world federation of nations in a very federated, decentralized sense. But we've also always had ethno-national tendencies as well. And they're coming out right now in the United States with conflicts between people who are very pro-immigration and want the country to remain open to heterodoxy in the way it was at some points in its history. And you have others who worry that something about the identity of the country will be lost if there's too much diversity and there will ultimately be a majority of minority groups and um, the white Anglo-Saxon tradition um, will be diminished and what it brought to this country will be lost. So there's a, a split now between ethno-national and let's call it civic nationalism um, in which just being loyal to con what's called constitutional patriotism for some people, for those who are more multicultural, is seen as the defining feature of citizenship. If you are loyal to the Constitution and believe in it, even if you disagree about how to interpret it, that's your sacred text. That defines citizenship. That's very different from any definition of citizenship, which is tied to a particular religion or a particular ethnicity or to a particular racial category. So but anyway, that's my long-winded, I hope my, uh, uh, I hope it's, it, it counts as a response to your question. Yes, of course it counts. And I mean, it seems to me at least that multiculturalism is a real problem and an issue we, we have to deal with. Perhaps there's not a one size fits all solution to the problem of, multi, of multiculturalism in different countries. Perhaps we have to test different approaches in different places. But anyway, at a certain point you referred to uh, the case of Europe and I think it is very 
very interesting because uh, at least uh, as, as from my perspective, I think that here people focus a lot uh, on the issue of assimilation and they think that pe that foreign peoples and migrants really have to assimilate into the hegemonic culture, let's say. But, I mean, even from an historical perspective, isn't it true that, at least in some historical empires, that people, uh, if they paid their taxes and, and if they got through with the necessary bureaucracy that was the same to everyone, that they were allowed to keep their cultural traditions and some of their practices. Uh, and I mean, it, it sort of worked, at least for very long periods of time in some of those empires. So I mean, th there could be alternative solutions apart from simple assimilation, right? Yes, I agree with that. And I think that historical analysis and study is terribly important at this point, given the problems we're facing. And I think you've invoked that in a way, directly or indirectly. Um, one of the more important books that I've read in the last few years, which I would recommend to anyone who's viewing this, um, is a book by the David Frumpkin called The Peace to End All Peace. And it's a play on the, the notion of World War I as the war to end all wars. And his book is called The Peace to End All Peace because he's looking at the demise of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I and the kind of ways the European powers divided up the Middle East or West Asia. And part of his notion is that many of the conflicts we're facing now are a result of the way in which the Ottoman Empire got chopped up at the end. And there is, I think, in the book, and if not in Frumpkin and some historians, a kind of nostalgia these days for some of these empires, like the Ottoman Empire or even the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, where for hundreds of years they did manage to maintain relative peace um, in a place in which you had you know, the Ottoman Empire had probably at least 20 or more peoples speaking 20 or more languages coexisting within the empire. And they didn't have a notion of thick citizenship. Um, and in fact, that distinction between thick and thin citizenship, I think, is important. I would say that in the European, northern European countries, especially, there's a pretty thick notion of citizenship. Like in France, speaking French, or, you know, look at the reaction to headscarves in the School of the Republic, which contrasts enormously to the United States. I mean, in the United States, Somali refugees appear in Lewiston, Maine. The girls are in the high school wearing headscarves. It's a school, this is a student of mine, Heather Linquist, who's done work on this topic in Lewiston, Maine. Um, the school already had a policy forbidding um, bandanas because of the association with gang activity. And all of a sudden, these high school Somali girls show up wearing headscarves and they accommodate them very quickly. Um, the government's behind religious freedom. Um, and 
you know, they allow headscarves. Um, in fact, they allow headscarves. And then some parents of kids who were wearing bandanas complain, how can you let these Somali kids wear headscarves and my kid can't wear a bandana? And one of the Somali girls apparently took a bandana and wore it as a headscarf to show solidarity with those other classmates. And all this goes forward in a way that would never happen in a French school where they prohibit headscarves. Um, because somehow it symbolizes parochial identities and they don't want parochial identities subverting the relationship of the individual citizen and the state. Um, you know, you can't imagine in the United States people addressing themselves, each other as citizen. Citizen Lopez, how are you today? That would not happen in the United States. It would be seen very strange. So the state and the constitutional patriotism in the United States is meant to support very decentralized structures that allow room for religious freedom, for people to associate with members of their own tribe and not others. I mean, all that, there's space for it. So it's a thinner view of citizenship. The thinness being constitutional patriotism, not a particular, speaking a particular language. There is no official national language in the United States, for example. Yes, English is widely spoken, but it's not an official language of the country. Um, so in the Ottoman Empire, they organized all that diversity by having lots of local control. There was a weak center, not a strong center. They did collect taxes. That was one thing you had to do. You had to respect the boundaries of the territory you were all allotted, your millet, so-called millet. And so, yes, Armenians lived here and Greeks lived here and Jews lived here um, and Serbs lived here. Um, but they were ab able to have Christian and Muslim traditions um, by letting local elites run their own show. They didn't tell any group what religion they had to practice. They didn't tell them what their kinship system had to look like. They didn't tell them how to raise their children. They didn't have United Nations Committee writing best practices for raising children manuals. Um, they stayed out of the local group's business as long as that local group didn't encroach on other people's territories and paid their taxes. If you go to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as far as I understand, no language was spoken by a majority of the population in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. German may have been the most populous, and that was about 23% of the speakers. Um, if you go to India today, it's very Ottoman-like in many ways. India, there's no language spoken by a majority of the population in India. English, which and I'm sure many people in Europe and America, United States, North America, know lots of Indians who are very speak English very well, better than the English. Um, but you're not going to find, I don't think, more than probably... 20%, 25% of the and most of the population in India is fluent in English. Um, there's a North Indian, South Indian divide. There are many major languages spoken, hundreds of, of minor languages. Um, they permit a different set of family law codes for Muslims than for others. They've accommodated an enormous amount of diversity in a very Ottoman-like way. And you know, they managed to go forward. Um, so we have different models for how we're going to organize societies. And I think the challenge now is going to be to see which countries basically try to maintain homogeneity and a strong central government, 
probably with a strong welfare tradition, um, which counts in a way on people feeling like they're all members of the same family and being very much alike for the redistribution of wealth that goes on to really be effective. And other places in which they're going to face up, have to face up to diverse populations where maybe the minority groups taken together are a majority, and then figure out what kind of polity are we going to have that's going to make it possible for us to live to with each other and to live and let live. Um, and coercive interventions from the top under such circumstances you know, may backfire and you know, may actually produce disharmony and disruption. But that's what we're faced with right now. We're actually at a point we're looking back and thinking about empires which preceded the modern nation state which ended up being a force that broke up empires and gave homogeneous ethnic groups their own governments and their own militaries. In a sense, it cre recreated a kind of tribalism at the nation state level. Um, and warring tribes are not particularly a good way of doing, of living, organizing society either. So what kind of internationalism or globalism are we gonna have that functions like the weak center in the Ottoman Empire? Um, and does that effectively without being too heavy handed and trying to say, you have to behave this way, you have to change your gender relations, you have to raise children differently. Um, you know, I, I, I'm struck at, at least from the outside, the way the Chinese seem to get involved in other societies. They seem to make fewer demands when they start investing um, in, in Africa, let's say. Um, you, you know, this, there seems to me some kind of interesting contrast between their strategy, which is not to tell people how to change their societies, and what often happens with Western aid from Europe or the United States, in which there are lots of strings attached, um, and you want people to change what you view as backward customs or gender relations or family life. Um, you know, those are different strategies, and we'll see which one is most effective um, as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Schweder, we've already done 90 minutes. We covered a lot of psychological and anthropological topics here, I think. So just before we go, would you like to tell people perhaps what are some of the best online resources for them to get in touch with your work? I suppose the easiest way is to go to the, my departmental website at the University of Chicago. If you put in my last name in Google, Schwader spelled correctly, there's no C in the last name, S-H-W-E-D-E-R, and then Schwader Department of Comparative Human Development. You will have access to my website where a selection of my writings are readable and downloadable. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. I will be leaving all of that in the description box of this video. And so, Dr. Schweder, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a very rich and deep conversation, and maybe perhaps in the future we could have another one. I look forward to it, and it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. 
And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.